Well, thank you so much, Josh, for joining me today. Excited about to talk about an industry that you know I'm kind of passionate about and sort of the merging of finance and, and impact and impact investing can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So excited to dive in and get your thoughts on, on the sector as it continues to mature a bit um, as we see a lot more capital come into it and, and hopefully there's more to come. Um, but before we get started talking about Citizen Mint and, and the startup you just founded and the mission you're on right now, Talk a little bit about your career path before Citizen Met. So I started my career doing accounting. So I worked at um, a big four Deloitte in California doing uh, auditing for their big investment firms down there. So whether like Pacific Life or others uh, within the space. And then I moved on to Russell Investments, which is a large institutional asset manager and worked in their manager research department for about six years. So this is helping you know pension fund assets uh, and large uh, mutual fund business that uh, we had there at the firm. And then I got recruited over to uh, a large wealth manager in Seattle. So I was the director of investment strategy and research uh, for a company called Laird Norton Wealth Management, which was about a $16 billion wealth manager uh, in the Seattle area. So yeah, so you've seen a, a lot of capital move in a lot of different ways. During your time time there, what was, how often did sort of impact investing come up? Was it in the ethos just in the last, you know, 24 months? Was it longer than that? Like, I guess, what was your introduction to impact investing? And did it come up at all when, when talking with these big, you know, pension funds and, and other big, other big funds you were, you were discussing with? Yeah, no, definitely. It was kind of this evolution um, throughout time. Um, so, uh, when I was at Russell, uh, it definitely was coming up, especially uh, really started with European clients um, mm -hmm. and their interest in, you know, moving to more uh, ESG, which, you know, stands for environmental, social and governments standards and like re reducing the negative externalities of the businesses that they're investing in. And then as I moved into the wealth management space, you know, there's a lot of clients who have very specific issues that they're passionate about, whether it's mm -hmm. climate change or housing affordability or education. Um, and we saw uh, this also massive shift within the industry where essentially there was a lot of very large asset managers or new investment talent coming out of large asset managers right, that were right. funds related to trying to have a better impact within uh, specific areas. So we, uh, so it continued to grow and it continued to grow within our client base um, where people were asking about it more and more and trying to think about how to align uh, their capital with their values while also trying to just like provide financial security for themselves and their future heirs. So it, it, it definitely is an evolution and a journey, but we've seen kind of the space continue to mature mature and people continue to uh, allocate significant sums of capital. Do you think that it's moving in a positive direction? Because early on, and not that it really matters that big of a deal, but you know, my thoughts on ESG is not very good. I thought it was a bad way to come. It was a bad way to present sort of quote unquote impact investing to the world. I thought it was, you know, it's just, a, it was a sloppy way to, to introduce mm -hmm. people to this type of, you know, investing. So do you think that... And again, you, you've sort of been at you know big firms and they, they move differently because they have to, right? It's just yeah. the amount of capital that they have. It's it's so hard to to transition on a dime, right? It, it, like you said, it takes a process and a journey. Do you see it getting better just from the overall industry 
trying to be a little bit more focused on the definition, on really doing you know, due diligence and trying to find a way to really define the space correctly and not be so nonchalant with it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there's, there's definitely, you know, we try and, um, you know, differentiate ESG from impact investing and SRI investing, uh, you know, socially responsible investing really focuses on essentially divesting from things uh, mm-hmm. you don't want to invest in. So whether that's say alcohol or tobacco right. stocks or nuclear stocks, um, or weapons manufacturers. And then you kind of move over into the spectrum of ESG where it's like, hey, you have all these stakeholders out there, whether it's your clients, mm-hmm. customers, uh, the environment. Uh, and it's like, how do you reduce those negative externalities of those operating businesses? So when Amazon drives another truck down your road, how are they able to reduce uh, the the oil that they're using and uh, try to become a more sustainable business uh, over the long run? Whereas impact investing and how we view impact investing is really saying, okay, what we have these massive issues that we need to solve, whether it's around housing affordability, whether it's around climate, sustainability, education, healthcare. And um, we don't believe that necessarily the government's going to solve those things. We think that like private capital is actually the best way um, to solve these issues. And it's like, you can invest in these opportunities because they really are multi-trillion dollar opportunities and have a positive impact and get strong returns for at the same time. Uh, And we've seen that kind of come to fruition where people are saying, oh, there's actually these massive opportunity sets out there uh, and investors are pouring into the space because of the opportunity set and the ability to do good while also getting returns, uh, which we think is uh, highly compelling and which we're trying to provide to our clients. So talk a little bit about the journey and sort of not necessarily the aha moment, but you know the decision-making process into, into starting Citizen Mint and, and talk a little bit about the mission and vision of Citizen Mint and why you decided to sort of take that leap. You know, working within the space, uh, I essentially saw younger generations saying, hey, I need to align my capital with my values. And even like uh, people who hadn't been interested in doing that in the past were starting to become more interested in it. And also at the same time, we saw this kind of like increase in the number and the talent actually of asset managers within the space. And I kind of had this aha moment where it was like, where maybe I was skeptical uh, possibly before of what impact investing was, or could it actually have an impact and get good returns? Like if were they giving up something in this process was always kind of the mentality of thought process uh, from a performance perspective. And I realized, no, they actually aren't. Um, and kind of where the industry was moving, where future generations want to invest kind of all came together. And I said, hey, there's actually this massive like wave of investors coming who want to invest their capital very differently and want to have a positive impact with that capital. And we, we've we seen it kind of in the numbers. I mean, there's $1.2 trillion in private market impact investments currently. It's the fastest growing part of uh, the financial services industry with $150 billion in new private mm-hmm. impact investments made annually. Uh, and that number is accelerating pretty dramatically. And so going through that process and seeing all these things kind of push me to be like, hey, I, I need to go out and uh, this this is actually where the industry is going. This is where people want to be. And just thinking about the, the mission of saying, 
you know, more people should have access to this particular part of the market. It shouldn't just be institutional investors. It shouldn't just be the ultra, ultra high net worth investors. Um, so trying to uh, provide more democratization within that space uh, was ultimately the mission and goal when uh, we set out on this. What are some of the the opportunities? Because again, we, we can we say impact investing, it could be, you know, <laughs> a broad stroke of things, you know, people are going to define it differently. They're going to look at certain opportunities and say, this is impact investing or it isn't. But like, I guess, how do you choose the, the offerings and what is sort of the, the due diligence that go in them to make sure that they're right for the system mint platform? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so we have a number of uh, kind of like broad bucket offerings, um, like whether it's around the environment, community health and wellness, kind of empowerment, uh, but like specifically under that to give just some examples, it would be, you yeah. know, within community health and wellness, maybe affordable and workforce housing. So essentially that's not necessarily low income housing. That's saying, hey, there's this broad group of the population uh, that's struggling uh, with housing affordability and you know it's like how do you house teachers and nurses mm -hmm. and firefighters and retail workers and put them in a place where they can actually live within uh, 10 miles of where they work instead of having right. Drive right. 50 miles. Um, it could be solar wind development uh, as kind of like renewable energy investment. Uh, it's also providing access to like top tier private equity impact or VC impact or debt funds uh, where, you know, they're investing in say like healthcare or education or other kind of opportunities within the space. There, we, we think the opportunity set is broad and most large asset managers are increasing uh, their capabilities there right now. Um, and we've seen, you know, kind of hundreds of new funds come out in the last few uh, months. I think the, the de democratization part is interesting because we, the offerings you still need to be an accredited investor, right? And this, it, there's still a gap there between, you know, normal people just, you know, wanting to invest still can't sort of get to these opportunities quite yet. But on the financial advisor side, that's the interesting part, because then that is where sort of the access comes in for everybody, so to speak. Talk about your conversations, maybe with financial advisors, like how are they seeking, you know, impact investing sector, because they, to me, or much could be much more on the front lines, right? Of kind of showcasing this to to their clients, right? That that's where I think the scale comes in. That that's necessary. Exactly, hundred percent. And I that is um, a place where I think there is a uh, definite new momentum that we can uh, bring to the universe where financial advisors, I think in the past have just said, hey, this is there's too high a minimums for these things for my clients who maybe do have capital, but aren't able to invest in, in, in most cases, it's $250,000 is the minimum. Right. And maybe they're able to invest 10, 25, 50, 75,000 in these opportunities, but they, they don't know that they don't know there's hasn't been a previous access uh, point where they could do that. Uh, and it's really educating you know, their clientele about these opportunities, you know, for most financial advisors, it's going to be a differentiator. It's going to be something mm -hmm. that's really a cool way for them to engage 
engage with their clients? Because I mean, in most cases, you know, clients leave because they don't feel engaged with the financial advisor that, or that the advisor's doing something that they that is differentiated. Um, so we think that like, hey, this is can be a differentiator for you as a financial advisor. It's something that you can align your um, client's capital uh, to their values. And I think it's also just a great thing to talk about on a quarterly basis. I mean, like you think of the year like 2022, it's not really fun to have those uh, quarterly discussions with your <laughs> yeah. clients when bonds and stocks are going down at the same time. Uh, and at least you could say, hey, you're invested in this uh, private market opportunity um, that's providing a real benefit to society or the environment. Uh, and those are kind of things to highlight with your clients in these kind of tough market environments. Um, but the I think there is more momentum within that space. I was just at the Financial Planners Association conference, which brings together uh, thousands of financial advisors. And the head of Elvest was the mm-hmm. uh, the co-founder of Elvest was the main speaker there. And she said, you know, the two main trends that you're going to have to deal with is one, women are going to control a lot of the capital in the future. And, you know, Elvest is uh, yep. really, um, you know, focused on women. And she said they're 60% of college graduates and they live eight years longer than men and they're 50% of the workforce. <laughs> so you, you better be ready to um, be able to have those conversations and really engage with women. And then two, if you're not doing impact investing, then you're really going to miss out because that's where the industry is going. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, providing that kind of like guidance uh, to financial advisors and providing, um, you know, kind of that you know, forward looking thinking of what people want, especially millennials yeah. uh, and Gen Z to a secondary extent. It's like they care about these issues. And as long as we're, these are providing financial security and a good financial return, uh, you know, they want to be invested this way. I want to touch back real quick on sort of whether it's discovery or choosing what's available, right? Because that's yeah. a big part in all this yeah. is you have a, a big responsibility, right? To, to sort of present impact oriented offerings that, you know, hopefully will, you know, get a lot of funding, get a lot of capital into. So I guess like how, like what's your process in choosing that? Is it, is it a week, a month of sort of looking at things, looking at some ancillary benefits, like obviously, you know, renewable energy that there's, that's sort of a, not an easy one, but it's, it's a little bit much more, Mm -hmm. it's a little much more obvious, right? I I guess. And then affordable housing, like I love what you said about teachers. That seems such like an obvious thing to have teachers, firefighters um, live close to where they they work. To me, that's such an advantage and a and a perk that they should get, right? Because yeah. we somehow can't pay teachers anything, but maybe there's more benefits for teachers, right? They get access to really beautiful, affordable housing close to where they teach. To me, that is really phenomenal. And, and hopefully that can scale across the country. That would be amazing. Yeah, just go through that process of choosing stuff and how do you... How do you like to look at things when you're deciding? It, it's really, it, it does take a long time. And obviously like just even building the universe of managers. So essentially finding, saying, right. okay, we want to invest in solar wind power. Well, there's, you know, 
50 managers out there where that we can make those investments. So who are the best? Mm-hmm. And so it, it takes that time of like, you know, reading a lot of due diligence, um, meeting with the investment teams of those managers over time um, and essentially determining uh, what kind of unique investing capabilities they might have and that they're going to do well through multiple market environments. Um, so it, it, it does take a network of like being able to, and, and this is what I've built kind of over the last uh, five to 10 year period is this network of, okay, well, who's the universe of education VCs? Who's the universe of affordable housing developers? Who's the universe of top tier, like private equity impact funds? Uh, and then uh, being able to understand like when they're raising capital, because they don't always raise every single year. Uh, they'll you know, usually raise capital every couple of years and then kind of lining up like our due diligence um, to hit those capital raising cycles. So, you know, we go in and meet with their investment teams. We understand, uh, try to understand how they do what they do and why uh, we believe they can do that into the future. We review their performance track record, you know, do reference checks, uh, do background checks, um, try and do these, uh, it's called operational due diligence on the back end where we're essentially saying, you know, we're giving these people a lot of capital. They have a lot of discretion over that capital. So we need to make sure that they're going to use utilize it appropriately and that we can feel confident that, you know, we're, we will get our money back and return from that, from that money. Uh, and I think in most cases, these deals are longer in nature and you have uh, limited liquidity. Um, so it could be you're locking up capital from two years to 10 years or longer. Um, So say if you're in a venture capital fund, your capital is probably going to be locked up for at least eight and maybe 12 years. Um, So you need to make sure that uh, who you're investing with um, is really great at what they're doing and has proven that over time. Um, So it's really building out those universes over time and um, knowing the players within each particular universe and making sure that uh, they can do what they say they can do going forward, not just on a backward looking basis. I want to jump into a little bit of your, you know, maybe last, let's call it year and sort of launching a startup, right? And, you know, going through that process, you've been sort of the industry for a really, really long time. But obviously, there's different dynamics when, you know, starting your own thing, you know, talk about maybe some lessons learned in that process over the last 12 months of actually, you know, launching something brand new, you know, in the financial space, which is ever transforming right now in a lot of different ways. Just just talk about the last 12 months of, of becoming, you know, a founder and a CEO. Yeah, I mean, so many lessons learned, probably about a hundred times harder than I could have even ever imagined. Uh, I mean, it stretches you in so many different ways um, because you're trying to do so much. Um, so it really comes down to like, you know, setting out a task at the beginning of each day and like, like kind of stacking days on top of each other <laughs> to uh, <laughs> grind and get, uh, you know, some momentum going. But yeah, no, it's different. I mean, it, it's it's fun and it's crazy creative and you realize there's a lot you don't know. Uh, And, you know, you're kind of always reaching out to others to ask them how they did what uh, how they like maybe other entrepreneurs and like, how'd you do this? Or how do you think about this? Um, I think, 
you know, you have to kind of be accepting that you're going to make mistakes along the way. Obviously, uh, you're like, I mean, every startup founder is going to have, you know, issues that they have to deal with and figure out. And I think that's like actually the first lesson that I really learned is, you know, maybe when you're in a corporate environment, um, you're, you're saying, okay, there's pretty much some guidance of where I'm going here. You know, I have a manager or a boss and, you know, they're providing me guidance and kind of overlooking me. But like when you're in a startup, it's like, yeah, you're going to face roadblocks and massive challenges. And it's like, how do we deal with this? And it's kind of keeping, I mean, it's funny because I think the startup, the mental game Mm -hmm. you have to have as a startup founder is completely different. Uh, The tenacity you have to have, you have like even understanding, like, especially in the first couple of months, the ups and downs on a daily basis of like, you know, you're kind of figuring out what you're doing. You're questioning, like, is this the right direction to go in? Um, You're dealing with like very significant challenges and just being able to say, okay, it's another day. This is the challenge in front of me and staying upbeat, um, I think has been the biggest, um, you know, thing I've learned Mm. uh, through that period. And you start talking to other entrepreneurs and you kind of hear the same thing. It's like, yeah, the mental like aspects <laughs> and the ups and downs and like you have the highest highs and the lowest lows and it could happen within the same day. Even. <laughs> Is there any like uh podcasts or books or, you know, websites that you've turned to a little bit and learned from that you would recommend? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I, you know, what's funny. It's like a couple months in, I started, and, and this is obviously an older podcast, but like uh, the Gimlet Media startup podcast. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, just some of the things he was going through, you know, is just resonates so well. And like the mental challenge or just like the time challenges, first of all, like how much time everything takes. That's been, I think it was just more encouraging to be like, okay, you kind of hear somebody else's journey of them like struggling uh, through these like very specific things. And it's like, it's helpful. Uh, Even, I mean, I, I, I can't remember the book right now, but I like listened to some startup book uh, by one of the major uh, VCs in Silicon Valley. And he's like, you know, you'd have to be del- usually startup founders are delusional uh, because they don't know how hard it is. And I like I just remember sitting in the car listening to it and like laughing to myself because you you realize that, yeah most startup founders are somewhat delusional because, you know, you're taking an idea and trying to produce something out of nothing. It takes a lot of tenacity and, you know, a lot of confidence to go out and do that. No, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. I wanted to touch back on one thing you said earlier around, you know, SRI sort of focused maybe on uh, divesting. And I think that's an interesting, it's an interesting philosophy on how to do impact investing, right? Because divesting can be a powerful mechanism. Like, what's your thoughts on, on that? Because I, I guess divesting is, to me, is is powerful. But then you still have the capital sitting that should needs to go somewhere, right? Yeah. So I think before it, it's been very, it was kind of difficult to divest, but then also put it that money to work somewhere is valuable because it just I don't know if the opportunities you know, we're around a decade, 15 years ago as they are now. So I kind of just get your thoughts on on sort of that dynamic. I think there's definitely areas um, where like divestment is 100% the right way to go. And 
essentially what you're doing is increasing that company's cost of capital because, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they have to like find money from somebody else, but it's, it just depends on the situation is, is it that impactful or is there even a better situation where you try to engage with the companies? So divesting mm-hmm. from like something where, you know, you don't believe in it. Great. But maybe there's also some engagement that could happen with that company where you're like, Hey, this company's not doing exactly what I wanted to do right now. Um, but what if we engage with them and say, Hey, you can bring in a whole new group of investors who are very interested in your business because of what you could do in the world. And I mean, you've seen some of those kind of actions with like the Exxon Mobil with Engine One, and they yeah. were able to like have some very significant. I mean, they they added three board seats of yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, and so and I mean, they were a very small shop at that time when they did that, um, but they got a lot of people on board. Uh, on that messaging, you know, there is like actual change happening out of that. There's also like with other kind of like banks, it's like, hey, we want you to be able to fund these specific opportunities. And but we don't want you to fund oil sands drilling in, uh, mm-hmm. in you know, Canada and this like Arctic region or something. Uh, so the, and we've seen those companies divest from that. Um, but, or I mean, uh, divest from the oil sands drilling. Uh, but, uh, you know, there, there can be this like real change that happens if you engage with companies and you it can show them essentially like maybe your business will be more profitable without this, or maybe like you will have a lower cost of capital in the future because in, more investors want to invest in you if you do this. Mm-hmm. And you can make a real business case around it. Yeah. I think, yeah, that, that's the, that's the key point is companies, companies are companies. You know, yeah. they, they, they act like companies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you have to show them, you know, economic model that works. And, you know, I think we are now seeing that it's very possible for sort of impact investments to have that economic return that perhaps people are used to, you know, just might look differently, which is yeah. promising. I want to talk real quick, uh, 401ks a little bit. And a while back I was kind of looking, I was like, why is there not like a impact 401k? You know, so people were telling me like, well, well, it's very, it's, it's a uh, very regulated, like you have to, there's only like these like very big players in the game. It's, you can't really have new entries into sort of the market. Right. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people don't really know what's in their 401ks. You know, if there's, it's not that it's a lack of transparency. It's just that people don't know that they can go and see exactly what they're invested in their 401k. But if that can be penetrated a little bit with sort of, you know, impact investments that that could be interesting, but like, do you ever see like 401ks making this transition? Like you see the private markets, the public markets is so much different. Um, so that'll take a bit longer. Um, but do you see, do you see ever see any, foresee any progress in the 401k market where it becomes much more impactful and people maybe, like you said, demand a little bit more from that mechanism? I definitely do. I think um, there's definitely, there's been, as you said, like there's been some regulations around some of those things where it's made it a little bit more challenging, but they're really, there, there are some players looking to open up that market um, to uh, allow for whether it's private market investments or just broader investment options within 401ks. I mean, ultimately, it is that person's capital and money. Mm-hmm. And they if they have the ability to, you know, invest in 
the hottest growth stocks or something else is is that that different than investing in you know like secure stable like private market investments and kind of like adding those as a differentiator to your 401k and adding that as diversification to your long-term retirement mm-hmm. planning i think it's the the, the one issue is the, the mechanism of how they do that. And so what does that actually look like? What is the fund structure? And um, like, can we get the minimums low enough to make it easy for people to invest in those things? Because in a lot of cases, uh, it's really the minimums, um, whether the person's right. like an accredited investor, what, like how long the term is. So there, but there is these fund structures called interval funds that do allow for non-accredited investors to get into them. They have to answer a couple more questions. Uh, they have better liquidity uh, capabilities. Your money is still locked up for a certain period of time. but uh, And you can put in usually like in chunks of like, say, $5,000 at a time, um, which would uh, lend itself pretty well to a 401k structure. Yep. Um, so like, I think it's coming. I think it will definitely be an evolution over the next five years where you start, you will start to see private markets in 401k structures. Um, it's just, you know, it takes time and industry adoption and one of the big players to, to uh, come out with that. And then there's a lot of follow-ons from that. Last question here is just a little bit about the future, and, and you know, I, I know it's been it's been a crazy you know last year for you in in, in starting something, building up, getting it to where it is now, which is also it's also it's a huge victory to even get to that point, right? But as you look, you know, three to five years down the line, what, what does success look like for you and Citizenet? Success for us is like providing this well thought out broad marketplace where people can access impact investments easily and you know they can really be able to align their capital with their values and be able to so like also just secure um, themselves financially. I mean, that's at the end of the day, what we're trying to provide. Uh, we're not necessarily trying to be concessionary in anything we do. And I think that's one of the, uh, one of the misunderstandings of the impact investing universe is like, it sounds like it's going to be concessionary or I'm giving up something. It's like, no, it doesn't need to be. What you're doing is providing positive outcome for some specific issue area while also getting returns and like providing for your financial security over time. So for us, us, like having this broad marketplace where impact investing becomes synonymous with uh, the citizen mint. And, um, you know, when people think of, hey, I want to get an impact investment, well, I should actually go to citizen mint to think about that and like see what they have on their platform. Or it's also like clients of financial advisors requesting, hey, why are you guys not utilizing citizen mint uh, for us as clients? Because they have a lot of great things that I want to invest in. Um, and so being well-known within the industry, providing, uh, you know, the best op- investment opportunities to clients and really securing their financial future. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time, Josh. Uh, long road ahead. Uh, congrats on the, the early wins and, and getting everything to where it is now. Financial industry is, is, is ever-changing. It's, to me, probably the most important sector that we all should be educating ourselves with. I don't come from that background, but I, I enjoy it. And I worked at a broker dealer for a little bit. So I got to see a little mm-hmm. bit of that world. And, you know, I just think it needs to be embedded in all of our lives a bit more learning financial literacy as early as possible. And yep. it's never too late. Right. So to me, as we, as we go down this road of actually, Hey, your dollars can 
do something pretty impactful. I think all of us can can do wonders by just educating ourselves and, and just constantly learning uh, around this sector. So congrats on everything so far. Best of luck to you and the team uh, over the next decade, my man. All right. Thank you so much, Graham.